Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Jackie Bailey, Deputy Leader of the Scottish Labour Party and their finance spokesperson as well in the Scottish Parliament. And what a week to be talking about finances because the JERS figures are out this week. And if you wonder what the hell that means, that's Government Expenditure and Revenue Scotland. The stats about how much the Scottish Government raises and how much it spends. As you can imagine, in the prism of the endless debate over Scotland's constitutional future, these figures are often either used or dismissed uh, by people, um, depending on what they do or don't show. Um, so we talked to Jackie about um, what they do mean, um, particularly in the context of uh, Jackie's perspective and Scottish Labour's perspective, which is uh, they would Scotland uh, rather Scotland stay in the United Kingdom. So do those figures uh, back up that case? And whether they do or they don't, we have a good discussion about um, emotional arguments and not just appealing to the head, but appealing to the heart as well. Uh, we talk about a range of things. Jackie is one of the Scottish Parliament's longest-serving MSP. She's been there since 1999. We talk about the change that she's seen. Um, we also talk about the UK and Scottish Government's handling of the Covid crisis, including on education. And Jackie's also on the Committee on the Scottish Government Handling of Harassment Complaints um, pertaining to uh, Alex Salmond. And we talk about the Committee's struggle in getting information released from the Scottish Government and what hope they have of actually getting their hands on some of that crucial information they need. So it's wide-ranging. Um, Jackie is a, a relentlessly positive person. Uh, so it's, a, it's an upbeat discussion, even if some of the uh, subject matter uh, is uh, 
uh, is is troubling. Um, so it's, it's a great conversation. I will waffle on no more, apart from to say, as you would expect me to say, my book is out soon. Politically Homeless hits the shelves uh, on the 8th of October. You can pre-order it now. You can pre-order a signed copy from Blackwell's. I've put a link in the show notes. And um, there will be an audio book. I'm recording that in a couple of days. So it'll be slightly surreal to just read out my a whole book aloud, uh, particularly one that I've written. So um, I don't know what that's going to be like, but should you wish to order the audiobook, uh, then you can do that as well. Um, and I'll put all the links in the show notes. I will stop this rampant self-promotion and give way uh, to Jackie Bailey. Delighted to be joined by Jackie Bailey, Deputy Leader of Scottish Labour and Labour's financial spokesperson in the Scottish Parliament. Jackie, uh, what a week to be talking to you. We arranged this uh, interview a few weeks ago. I genuinely didn't realise that the um, JERS figures were out this week, so I've, I've got you at the right time. Um, you absolutely first, have. <laughs> firstly, on, on what JERS is, Government Expenditure and Revenue in Scotland. Um, we'll get into the detail of them, but just just as we start... Are they a fair and accurate assessment of what an independent Scotland's economy would look like? They, they are an accurate assessment of what's going on at this point in time, you know, and these are government produced figures. They're produced by the Scottish government. You know, they're verified statistically, you know, so it's not made up sets of statistics. These are a true reflection of what's going on in Scotland just now. And it measures both Scotland's expenditure um, and also its income. And unfortunately, you know, what the figures have shown is that there is an increasing deficit. And that's even before we talk about, you know, the impact of COVID-19. So currently, we're looking at a £15 billion deficit um, in 2019-20. That's a huge amount of money. In fact, you know, that's kind of more than we pay for the NHS in a year. Um, so if Scotland were to go independent tomorrow, for example, we would need to find the money to close that fiscal deficit. Um, so let's just deal with some of those figures then. A deficit of just over £15 billion, pounds, uh, £2 billion higher than last year. And uh, as a percentage of Scotland's GDP, it's 8.6%. That compares to the UK deficit as a whole, which is 2.5%. On the face of it, this seems to suggest that Scotland benefits from being part of the UK, um, that it, it, it gets more money than it, than it pays into the pot. And you would think that this would be... Uh, proof of the economic case for staying in the union but in the in the crazy world of modern politics in 2020 let alone the 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 wonderful world of scottish politics that's not always the way that it cuts down and what independent supporters would say is well look this we don't have control of all the levers we're not in control of our own macroeconomic policy and if we were in charge of that um that would give a more accurate picture well, I mean, they, they, they do say that. Um, and what's interesting for me is I think this does illustrate that we benefit from being part of the United Kingdom because we, we can you know, share opportunities, but, but we also share risks and rewards together. Um, so for me, what the nationalists need to convince us of is that the economy is strong enough to be able to be independent. Now, they've published reports, the Growth Commission, um, they were supposed to yesterday indeed publish a report on the case for independence. Um, They failed to do so. That's been quietly shelved because I think the case is certainly weak when you look at the finances. Um, But they do have substantial powers. I mean, I've no doubt 
the Scottish Government, the Scottish Parliament have substantial powers that they don't always use. They have the ability to grow the economy, to generate more income, um, to increase the number of taxpayers, um, and they don't do that effectively. We do need, I think, a partnership between Scotland and the rest of the UK, because I do think we are stronger together when we work together. Now, COVID-19 has, has proved that up to a point. Um, there was nothing between the approaches of all four nations. Um, but of course, now we're seeing a bit of divergence. But, but actually sticking together, um, working together is what we need to see coming up in the future. And the reality. scale of the task we face is, is just so huge. We're going to face a, a job tsunami, um, as particularly as the furlough scheme ends. Um, and for Scotland to be able to afford to do the things that are required alone, I think is a mistake. Uh, COVID, of course, will... Uh, uh, next year's figures will just be completely different in every corner of the UK. I mean, do you think, in a way, COVID is a kind of... Uh, sort of it, it, it makes the economic case a kind of secondary concern in a way because when we talk about percentages of deficits you know 8.6 percent in scotland compared to 2.5 percent of the uk as a whole you know next year's figures are just going to be colossal everywhere and will that potentially in some people's mind minimize the risk i, I think for a lot of people particularly those that, that i've spoken to in my local community their frame of reference about what matters to them has changed as a result of covid you know, they, they've lost loved ones in care homes. They've seen family members lose jobs. And what, what's interesting from their perspective is, yes, they care much more about the economy and jobs. Um, the NHS is probably the top priority for them. But, but the whole question of independence is almost on the back burner. Now, you know, you would not expect anything other than a reaction to Boris Johnson in Scotland. People don't like him. They don't like the colour of his government. And so you'll see in polls recently that support for independence from Boris Johnson certainly is rising. But the reality is when you ask people what their priorities are, the constitutional future of the country comes very, very low down. And they care about the NHS, they care about jobs, they care about the future for their young people, um, because we need to make sure young people have hope and opportunity. So I think the frame of reference has changed and people are much more alive to what they need to do in the here and now, which is why I think, you know, Nicola Sturgeon's sole um, pronouncement uh, over the summer seemed to be that we're going to have a second independence referendum and that's going to be in their manifesto. Well, I'm sorry, I don't think the time is right for that when the country is struggling to recover and families and communities that I represent are really having a hard time post-COVID. So I think people's frame of reference has changed. We know from the European experience, though, that you know, whenever you polled the public, Europe was way down on people's priority list. That didn't stop elements of the political class obsessing over it, forcing it onto the agenda and getting the result they wanted. So we've, we've been here before in recent times, and of course, it was not that long ago we had a Scottish independence referendum. Given that the SNP are in charge, given that it looks like next year they will have a very successful round of elections, and obviously that's a bit of a way off, and let's see what happens, but at the moment it looks like um, that they're going to do quite well, or, or indeed very well. Um, it really doesn't matter in a way, does it, whether the public don't want a referendum. If the people in charge have a majority and that's their, that's their one priority, you may end up having one anyway. Well, indeed, but, but I have to say to you that if they have another referendum and they lose it again, 
then I think that puts the question of independence very much on the back burner, not just for a generation, but probably two. So, you know, you'll find that the strategists within the SNP will be very alive to that. Um, and certainly my impression of, of what Nicola Sturgeon is doing is, is promising the prospect of an independence referendum, but actually not wanting to deliver that anytime soon, because in the current circumstances, I think she would lose. Um, the reality is you, you don't get to keep asking people in a never end of what they think about the constitutional future of the country. Um, so if they ask and they lose, you know, it does get shelved. But I have to say that, that anybody looking at the position just now, looking at, you know, the recovery plan we're going to have to put in place for the NHS, um, the fact that education is a mess currently, you know, and we have potentially tried to judge people's life chances on the basis of an algorithm, you know, there are many more pressing priorities. And I think a government that the obsesses about the constitution will get punished by the electorate. Um, we'll come on to some of those other issues actually, because it's really interesting that the education, to, you know, as, as what's happened across the UK, but just Indeed. on the economics of it, um, people say, and it's often people who don't like the economic, it's usually people who are on the wrong side of the economic argument, but they say, well, economic arguments don't win referendums. And obviously people would cite Brexit as an example of that. Um, people might say actually what Vote Leave understood was that, uh, concerns around immigration were economic and that that's that was an economic argument but people didn't realize it they managed to make it emotional rather than uh, make it look like it was appearing entirely to the head um but do you worry that economic arguments don't seem to cut through or, or maybe i'm wrong you know maybe maybe people in in scotland will be reading these jurors figures and and people who aren't uh, in in one trench or the other will say well this doesn't look particularly good do you do you find on the doorstep that the economic case for staying in the uk is, is still the strongest argument um, I think without a doubt the economy matters, but I think we also need to win people's hearts as well as their minds. Um, and what struck me when, when you talk about going around the doors, certainly I do that in my constituency all the time, um, people were, would, would reflect to me that some of the numbers that we talk about are too big. What, what's £15 billion? Pounds? People yeah. don't understand that. But if you boil it down into what's spent on them per head, or what the impact will be for them as a family or a community, then that becomes much more understandable. It's more relatable then. And we need to get better at explaining that to people in terms of how they live their everyday lives. There was one moment during the 2014 referendum campaign that, that I took away with me as a lesson well learned, where we compared, um, you know, literally a basket of shopping from I think it was Asda in, in somewhere in Edinburgh compared to Asda um, in you know, Ireland or indeed somewhere else. Um, and the costs were cheaper because we were part of one internal market that worked effectively for us um, rather than introducing a separate country and barriers. And for a lot of people that resonated because they could relate to the fact that for them it would become personally more expensive. Um, so yes, we do need to make the economic arguments because they are important and they do lend themselves to why we are stronger being part of the United Kingdom. And that's a positive argument to make. But, but equally, we need to be quite clear about what that impact would be on ordinary people. Such a good point about talking about numbers because 15 billion is unquantifiable in everyday people's lives. And on top of that, 
we're talking about the UK government being leveraged for like a trillion quid at the moment. And that's just the current um, amount of borrowing that we're, that we're up to as a result of the pandemic. So compared to a trillion, 15 billion people might go, actually doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> 15 You're right. pocket change. But, 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 you know, I've never seen 15 billion pounds in one place. So, so no, know, I haven't, it's, no. a, it's a vast sum of money. But again, people don't relate to that. So, you know, people live their lives, um, you know, based on, on, for them, the most important issue will be the cost of living. It might be their mortgage, it might be their rent. You know, do they have a job? Can they service debt? Um, so there are all sorts of things that lend themselves to how you can live your life to the very best um, possible. And therefore being able to make people understand what that means, maybe for their pensions, for their employment, if you work in a particular industry. Um, so for example, um, the, 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 there are many companies in Scotland that provide insurance services across the UK. Um, indeed, some of those jobs will end up going south rather than necessarily staying in an independent Scotland. All these things need to be discussed, explained, talked about. Um, and I think, yes, we need to do that. But we also need to have an emotional argument about why it is better to be part of something bigger, you know, rather than isolate yourself and turn inwards. I've always been very much about looking outwards and, and what do you have in common with people rather than what, what is the difference. I suppose should a referendum take place in the next few years, both sides will try and claim that territory won't they you know the people on the side of the union will say you know don't turn inwards away from your closest neighbor um the uh, independence campaign will say well let's let's open our arms up and go back into the european union well indeed but i think you know whilst many of us myself included wanted to remain in the european union i think the reality of scotland going back in um, needs to be thought through because you know, we would need to agree to join the euro for a lot of people. The, the requirement to join the euro is something that they would find difficulty with, not least because of the fiscal um, rules that we would need to adopt. That means that our deficit would need to be down to, I think, two to three percent. Um, so, so there are a lot of tough choices there. And I find it really hard where the SNP is not prepared to have um, the UK have sovereignty over them. They're happy to hand that straight back to the European Union. So I think you'll find there is real disagreement amongst the SNP's ranks as to whether that is a desirable outcome from their perspective. Um, so don't get me wrong, I am a committed European. I want us to be back in Europe, um, but I don't think that the SNP path is necessarily the one that will get us there. I would rather rejoin as the whole of the UK. And is making the emotional case for the UK how easy or indeed hard is that when, when you have a Conservative government led by Boris Johnson? Oh, it's incredibly difficult, believe me. I mean, Boris Johnson is not my number one fan, you know. Um, I, or should I say I'm not his number one fan. But, um, you know, it, you need to get beyond the, the temporary um, position where you have a Conservative government that I think is bad for the country to actually what the shared history of the United Kingdom has been. And when I look at people in Scotland, I know families who, whose young people have gone down to London to work. You know, the, it, the Scottish diaspora is everywhere. It's all over the world. It's in, it's in the rest of the UK too. 
there is more really that joins us together than, than divides us. Um, and I would want us to, you know, it's almost like it's, it's, it's a, such a shared history, it's difficult to describe. I mean, it goes back over 300 years um, and I don't want that broken up. You're right, it will be the contested area, um, but, but my identity isn't just about being Scottish, it is about being part of the UK. And actually, as somebody who was born and brought up in Hong Kong to a Scottish um, mother and a Portuguese father, um, I think identity is something that is increasingly multi-layered. And, and I would like that to be very much the approach we take in the UK. It would be so much easier for you to make the case with a Labour government. Um... We've been quite far away from having a Labour government for the last 10 years, but it looks like that there might be a, at least a, a distant flicker of hope um, with Keir Starmer, who um, I imagine, given your politics, you, you probably um, would assess to be a more effective leader of the Labour Party than Jeremy Corbyn. Um, just in terms of his impact in Scotland so far, do, do you think people are kind of looking at him at all at the moment? Uh, or, or has he sort of struggled to... to, to to cut in or cut through in Scotland and accepting that he's very early on in his leadership. Yeah, he, he is early on in his leadership, but, but I have to say to you, it's like a breath of fresh air um, because, you know, I care about winning, you know, at the end of the day, the, the Labour Party is the Labour Party. It exists to win parliamentary seats in order to form a government to transform people's lives. And we were far away from it. Um, since 2017 and in the 2019 general election. And the reason I know that is, again, because in the doors in my constituency, you know, people did not like our leader. They wouldn't give the Labour Party a chance they, because they couldn't see past that current leader. And that's a huge disappoint, disappointment to me. But the reality is that has now changed. Um, and competence has been restored to the Labour Party. So I am just delighted Keir Starmer's there. But, but to answer your question, there's constantly polling done in Scotland. Um, Keir Starmer's uh, favourability rating is positive. Um, people are prepared across the board, not just Labour supporters, but indeed SNP supporters, to give him a hearing because they recognise that if you really want to get rid of a Conservative government, then a Labour government is the best way of doing so. So I'm very much looking forward to 2024. I think Keir Starmer's made a fantastic start um, and hopefully he'll be up in Scotland shortly with uh, you know, his, his shadow cabinet and that will be a really positive thing. And what's the, what, I mean, how does it compare just in terms of behind the scenes, you know, whatever the political differences were between Corbyn and Starmer? Um, is Starmer in touch with colleagues north of the border more regularly than, than his predecessor was? Well, I can only speak about um, relationships since April because I only became the deputy leader then. Um, so my, my term of office coincided with Keir Starmer's and I have to say um, the dialogue is really positive, the support is there, um, you know, there is nothing we can't ask for that they won't help with. Um, it's a really positive and respectful working relationship because, you know, they respect the fact that Scotland you know, has its own autonomy in the sense that we are responsible for policy making with a devolved government um, and they don't interfere in that. What they want to do is support and it's delightful to have that degree of, of you know, engagement with our colleagues down south. I have to say, Zoom has helped enormously as well. You're not having to travel great distances 
across the country when you can just dial in and talk to each other. So it's fantastic. And is the, I mean, I suppose the, the, the sort of devolution boundary gives it, gives the sort of rules, you know, that the Scottish Labour is autonomous, but Keir Starmer will be seeking votes for a Westminster election in a few years time in Scotland. So how does that work? Is it that Richard Leonard and yourself are in charge of everything that the Scottish government covers and then Keir Starmer can speak on things that the UK government covers? Because there'd be times when it would probably be quite helpful to have him speak on things that, that are devolved. Yeah. And I think what, what, what we want to do is make sure that um, we are joined together in our views about the key issues and that when in Scotland, Keir Starmer can offer a view about um, devolved matters as we would offer a view about things that affect the whole of the UK. But we need that mature grown-up relationship that is there um, to enable that to happen. But what I want to see is members of the, the Shadow Cabinet um, coming to Scotland on a regular basis, not waiting for an invitation, but recognising we are part of UK Labour as much as we are Scottish Labour, and we want to see and hear from them. So, for example, Annalisa Dodds is coming up um, shortly. You know, she hails from Aberdeen, she knows Scotland well, um, and she's the Shadow Chancellor. So who else would we want to hear from You know, when we're facing a tsunami of job losses, the job furlough scheme ending? Um, she has a lot to say and offer um, to Scotland. Do you think, well, we ask this a lot of, of, of the Tory party, but do you think the Labour Party gets Scotland at a UK level? Um, I, I think, yes, I think they do. I think the issue for me is that they are respectful of the relationship with Scotland um, and they seek to understand what the priorities are that, that we face. And therefore, yeah, I think they, I think they do. There are also many people um, you know, within government who have connections to Scotland, their families from Scotland, they themselves are from Scotland. Um, so as a key part of the United Kingdom, then yes, I, I think um, Labour does, Scottish Labour does. Um, we need to do better, as any political party does, to make sure that we are in contact with um, the people we seek to represent. So yeah, it's, it, when there's no complacency about it. Um, but yeah, I think we do understand every part of the United Kingdom, but should always strive to do so um, even better. Because maybe, maybe I'm being unfair here, but I think, and this applies to all parties, I think a lot of politicians south of the border are slightly intimidated by Scottish politics. And as a result, <laughs> don't go. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. You're laughing, so that reassures me that I might be talking right. But I, I think some of them oh, God, you know, it's tricky. Am I going to put my foot in my mouth? Am I going to say the wrong thing? You know, I think that kind of scares them off a bit. Um, yeah, no, I have heard that, but, but please, <laughs> we are a very gentle, very welcoming place, you know. Um, do not be put off by the people standing at the border protesting. Um, they yeah. do not represent Scotland. Um, they represent a fringe of the SNP um, that even the SNP are embarrassed about. So, no, we are a very welcoming country. Um, you know, our press are very good at picking people up if they say something wrong. But, you know, people just want to hear from us um, across the country and in Scotland too. Well, you know what? I mean, it's so easy. If you, if, the danger is, as most people do, consume their politics through some form of media that's either partisan or uh, only concentrates on, on the dramatic elements. And um, 
whatever my differences with various politicians in the UK and in Scotland. I've been to so many political events in Scotland and they're completely different to how you would, you would just think, oh my God, it's going to be a bonfire, you know, and it's not. People in every party do get on and I'm sure you have friends in the SNP and I'm sure you have friends in, in various parties. But it can, I, I think the, the nature of the tone of it over the last few years has perhaps given the wrong impression. It, the, the, there's no doubt that since 2014, I think the country has become um, more divided. Um, you see that in social media, you see that in the way people talk to each other. Um, you see that even in individual families, because I know families that didn't speak for six months after the referendum because they were on different sides of the argument. Um, we do really need to get beyond that because there is much more that unites us as a society than, than divides us. It will take time, or it has taken time for, for that to heal, and some people, frankly, have never got over it. Um, but I'm much more interested in you know, working with my local community to you know, fix um, the bedroom taxes we did or child poverty or some of these progressive issues than I have ever been in waving flags and seeking to make an issue about identity. My, my politics is, is much more progressive. Labour's politics is about how we transform society, how we create progressive change. I am so not into flag waving or deciding whether you have value based on where you were born. The danger at the moment is that because Labour have, have not done so well in Scotland in recent times, um, post the referendum in Holyrood and Westminster elections, that it's seen as a fight between the SNP and the Tory party, and not just because Westminster is, is uh, run by the Conservatives and Holyrood is run by the SNP. There's a sense that in Scotland, it, you know, when Douglas Ross becomes the new Conservative leader, it's, you know, he's the guy who's going to save the union. And there may be some element that you know, he, he will attract more Conservative voters, and let's see. But it seems really odd that for a country that was Labour for so long, that was defined as being a Labour country, at the moment, the battleground seems between the Nationalists on one side and, and, and the Tories on the other. And Labour don't seem to be getting a foothold in that debate at all. I know. The difficulty is that if we allow the election to be framed as, are you in favour of independence or in favour of the union, then, then we do lose out if that's the sole frame of reference and, and debate. Um, so for us, it is very much about saying, actually, post-COVID, Politics has changed. You know, people's priorities have changed. Top priority is the NHS. The second priority is jobs and the economy. Um, and it is a Scottish Labour Party that is best equipped to actually talk about some of the solutions required to help the country recover. So the frame of the debate we need to ensure is on those priorities rather than simply on the constitution. And as I said to you, you know, whilst people may express a preference um, one way or the other, when, when asked about constitutional issues, they are very clear it is their seventh or eighth priority, um, well behind other things that matter to them. And I think Scottish Labour have quite a pivotal role to play, but the challenge for us is making sure that that message is heard. You know, so I am doing everything in my power to make sure that we have that alignment of, you know, the right people, the right message, the right policies, um, and the organisational capability to fight what will be a very different election. You know, gone will be pounding the streets and knocking on people's doors, which I love and some of my colleagues hate, 
Um, you know, but I think there's nothing beyond kind of going and actually talking to people. So it will be very much a digital campaign, things will change, um, but we need to fight to be heard in that territory. Um, and I will use every resource available to ensure that we do that. So why hasn't Scottish Labour been able to make an impact so far in the debate? Why, why has it been so unsuccessful in elections since the referendum? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to disagree that there has been, you know, an, a decline in our vote share um, over the years. I think people didn't like the fact that we were cooperating with the Lib Dems and the Tories and better together. Um, they didn't like the fact that um, we were, it, from their point of view, denying them the opportunity to be an independent nation. Um, and we were punished for that. And we made the mistake, I think, after the referendum of thinking it was just business as usual, whereas actually the country had changed and Labour didn't change with it at the time. Um, so from there, what we've done has not been good enough in terms of attracting people's attention. We've become the third party rather than being the principal opposition. That becomes much more difficult to get airtime. But I also have to say to you, it's, it's really challenging when the First Minister is on the BBC every single day, um, performs much better than Boris Johnson does. There's a surprise, you know, everybody expected that. Um, and therefore has a huge presence um, in, in Scotland that is not matched by the leaders of, of the other opposition parties. And that's, that's the nature of, of politics at the moment. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Richard Leonard's come under a fair bit of attack. You know, Jeremy Corbyn stood down after the election. Richard Leonard is a, a Corbyn supporter. Um, he hasn't been able to produce a breakthrough. I mean, is it unfair that... A lot of the coverage seems to focus on, on his leadership specifically. Um, I think it is because I think it, it is Labour Party as a team, not just the leader that matters. Um, and so, you know, my challenge would be to my colleagues in shadow cabinet, as well as to the leader, that, that actually we need to do better. We need to do better at getting our message across and ensuring that, that we are talking in a language that the people of Scotland um, want to hear. So it, it's not just down to one individual, it's a combination of things. You need to have the right policies, the right message, um, the right team, but also the right organisational capacity. 
And so we need to build a much better fighting machine. And as I said earlier, our colleagues in, in Southside have been incredibly helpful in that regard. When you talk about Labour and, and Scotland, um, not diverging, but, but not changing at the same time, there's now, even though independence may be down, there's seven or eight on people's lists, incrementally there is a, 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 an albeit a small majority in favour of independence when the Scottish public are polled. And I know polls are volatile and the only one that matters is, you know, on the day of the election or referendum. But nevertheless, it does look like there is a kind of a, a steady incremental drift in favour of independence. I follow SNP voices on, on Twitter and I know that you should not always take your enemy's advice, but some of them say, well, look, until Scottish Labour embraces independence or is in favour of a second referendum, it, it's going to be dead. Now... <laughs> I don't doubt that sometimes um, opponents give advice with a, an element of mischief. And of course, SNP politicians want other parties to adopt independence because it would make it easy for them to achieve. But is there an element of truth in that, do you think? And, and if not, how does Labour reconnect with Scotland if it's on the opposing side when it comes to independence? OK, I, I think that's quite simple, actually. Forgive me for saying so. Um, you know, I get elected locally and I've been elected in this seat since 1999. So I am one of the longest serving um, MSPs, but actually probably the only Labour MSP to consistently retain their seat since, since the start of the parliament. People in this area are very clear about what I think. You know, I believe in being part of the United Kingdom. I don't hide that. Um, you know, I talk about it. Okay. Despite that, people who support independence vote for me because they understand what I will attempt to do for the constituency, they understand the kind of progressive politics that, that I espouse, um, and they vote for me despite my constitutional beliefs, okay? Um, and that to me, of course, is a very positive thing. But, but if you take that, you know, across the UK, I'm convinced that a lot of the reaction you're getting, the positive you know, increase in, in the number of people supporting independence is because they can't stand Boris Johnson and the Tories. And believe me, you know, you can, you can understand people's reaction on that basis. But I suspect you might not see those same figures if it was Keir Starmer and a Labour government. Because actually, a lot of people believe in independence because they think it's a route into more progressive politics, a route away from a Tory government into more progressive politics. But actually, that's just not the case. If you look at the SNP's record in government, the thing that appalls me, you know, more than anything else, um, is the fact that you know, they introduce a, a Scottish child payment, great thing, but they've delayed it, they've put it back. So their response to COVID, instead of bringing forward a payment that will help tackle child poverty, is to kick it into the long grass. And actually, at a time where child poverty is increasing, completely wrong thing to do. You know, things like carers allowance, disability benefits, left with the UK government to administer when actually we have responsibility now in Scotland. Um, and one personal example, I fought John Swinney, who at that time was the Cabinet Secretary for Finance, for a year to make him mitigate the bedroom tax in Scotland. Um, and for a year, they refused to do so until we actually brought forward a member's bill to force them to do it. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I think, if you're a progressive government with a progressive kind of instinct in you, you know, these things you know, just wouldn't be an issue. You would do them. But 
I don't think the SNP are truly progressive. And therefore, I think this, this idea of vote for independence, things will be better, just isn't borne out by the reality of people's experience with the SNP now. You touched on it earlier that they're perceived as, as better communicators and perhaps that's not hard when Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister and Jeremy Indeed. Corbyn has been leader of the opposition. So, But nevertheless, nevertheless, <laughs> given a choice and that's what elections are, um, I did, the welfare element that you mentioned, it, it does strike me as a, a, the oddest of the three because for a government and for a party that wants as many powers as possible, to not want that power for another two years seemed very strange yeah absolutely just want it, it now it, and then make yeah. it work somehow you know but to, to, yeah. act, to actively put it off seemed a bizarre decision that there are a range of powers that the scottish government has that they haven't used you know so so um vat powers remain with westminster and uh, airport departure tax remain with westminster um but the benefits that that's the thing i just don't get because for me, I would want to seize control of that, given that you've got Tories at, at, at a UK level, um, so that we can fashion it differently, so that we can um, do things in a, a much more humane way whilst providing a safety net for people, so that you can actually tackle child poverty. All these things are pressing issues. We have the powers, yet we don't use them. That, that I find unforgivable. And therefore, you know, if you can't use the powers you've already got to effect change, being independent doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make better choices, certainly not based on their track record just now. And, you know, I look at, at every day, health is devolved in Scotland, education is devolved in Scotland. Um, it pains me that we have one of the worst records of COVID-related deaths in care homes, um, not just in Europe, probably the world. It embarrasses me that that happened in Scotland on our watch. It's not the responsibility of the UK government, nothing to do with Boris. This is all to do with Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP government, um, you know, and, and it, it, it is unforgivable. Equally with education, and I know this has happened across the UK, but there was a generation of young people coming out, you know, the 2020 generation is scarred by COVID, but then to be handed a set of results that in my area, a really good school that has a huge catchment area and therefore takes in lots of pockets of disadvantage, um, had their kids effectively graded on, on, I can only describe it as a postcode, but an algorithm that, that failed to recognise um, their actual achievements, failed to take in, into account their teacher's professional judgement and downgraded them for no reason other than the school that they went to. Now that's shocking. Uh, it denies hope and opportunity to a generation of young people. So I'm delighted that as a result of Scottish Labour moving a motion of no confidence in John Swinney, that suddenly he does this neat wee deal with the Greens to save his skin. But what it did was it meant that um, school children across Scotland got the grades that their teachers thought they deserved, and that was important. It's astonishing that John Swinney and Gavin Williamson are still in their jobs after what was a catastrophic mistake both of whom well let's be honest both of whom changed their minds because of the 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 unpopularity that that, that was uh, delivered upon them it, it does seem odd that really one of the biggest scandals of covid bar the health element was that that exam fiasco and they've, they've both been able to keep their jobs 
Yeah. I mean, politics has changed. I mean, it used to be in my day that people resigned if they, they did the decent thing if they'd made such an error. And you know, for five days, we witnessed John Swinney double down on this. Nicola Sturgeon doubled down on it to defend it. And I just thought, you know, here's a generation of young people and you are dismissing their future based on an algorithm. You can't do that. You just cannot do that. But they doubled down on it. And it was only when Labour had the, you know, the, the, the gumption, can I put it that way, to move a motion of no confidence that it forced minds. But John Swinney is, is, is like a fish out of water. Even his own backbenchers say that he shouldn't be in the education portfolio. Um, and it's not just his first mistake. There's been error after error, compounded by another error. Um, and Scottish education needs somebody new at the top, because much as I might like John Swinney as an individual, you know, that is not the portfolio that suits his talents. Absolutely not. You make a good point there. He is one of the nicest people I've met in politics. Absolutely. He's a and decent feel, man. You sort of feel bad when you're like, you know... You, you, I haven't met Gavin Williamson. I'm sure he has his positives. <laughs> um, I'm not entirely sure about that, but I'm, I'm sure he has. I'm sure his friends would say he's a lovely guy. I mean, it is difficult, isn't it? That's, uh, that's no doubt part of the reason why he kept his job is, you know, Scottish politics is a, an even smaller place than UK politics. Yeah. People know each other. He's a nice guy and people feel bad, you know, kicking a nice person, yeah. however much of a mess they may have made or something. <laughs> But, but I think there is another reason. I mean, I have no doubt John Swinney is a decent man. I, I personally um, have a lot of regard for him, but, but he's in the wrong job. And just because you have regard for somebody because he's nice doesn't mean he should be able to damage the future of hundreds of thousands of young people across Scotland. Um, I think the reason he's there is because, truth be told, John Swinney runs half the government for the First Minister. Um, and to lose him at the same time as so many of the SNP cabinet are retiring um, means that actually when you look behind the First Minister, there's not a lot of people there. So that's why John Swinney became politically important to keep in his post. We talked about the, the, the welfare element, VAT, the powers that the Scottish Government has that it, that it doesn't use. What is the future then? Let's say the UK survives. Keir Starmer's talked about federalism. I don't think he's really put any flesh on the bones there. What would your preferred settled relationship be with Scotland's relationship with the UK? Okay. Um, I would prefer us to remain in the UK. I think there is an argument um, for a more federal structure. Um, I must admit, when I say that to people on the doorstep, they, they kind of scratch their head and look at me and say, <laughs> what on earth does that mean? You know, so, so for yeah. me, it's a new settlement that recognises all parts of the UK, because the south of England is very different to the north of England. Um, you know, I remember back in the day when devolution was suggested for the north of England and they didn't fancy it. I suspect that will change now. It was John Prescott, in fact, that, that, that tried to get that introduced. It was, and it was, it, and it was Dominic Cummings who ran the referendum against it. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but, you know, I think people's view will change over time. And I think there is a demand for more localised control, more decentralised decision-making. I mean, I, I, for many years, have always been of the view that simply devolving power to Edinburgh isn't good enough. We actually need to devolve power down to local government and actually beyond that into our local communities because the people who shape the decisions, that experience this, the decisions, 
are likely to do best of all. Um, so, you know, Edinburgh is as far away from Dumbarton, you know, as, as London might as well be in terms of people's reference point. Yes. So um, I do think it's a new settlement across the UK. I do think maybe that's the, a federal structure, but I would want to see all the nations, Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, England, working together because I think partnership is the future, not division. As well as being a finance spokesman, have a spokesperson for the, um, for the uh, Scottish Labour Party, you also sit on a number of committees and you're on the committee of the Scottish Government handling of harassment complaints, which, which can't be a pleasant committee to sit on and to pour over. Um, and obviously it's not about rerunning any sort of trial or those uh, allegations about the way the Scottish Government handled harassment complaints. It was a, a flashpoint a, a week or so ago where... Linda Fabiani, who's the uh, SNP MSP, who's presiding or, or chairing the uh, committee, um, allowed a civil servant effectively not to answer what felt like a very important question. What is the latest on that? And, and what was the, just sort of give us a, if you can, a kind of quick uh, summary of, of precisely what happened in those proceedings. Well, I will be very cautious about what I say to you because I don't want to preempt what, what the committee will discuss. But, but one of my colleagues on the committee asked the question um, of the Permanent Secretary, Leslie Evans, whether um, any ad advice had been given to civil servants, uh, particularly female civil servants, not to be alone with the First Minister, the former First Minister, Alex Salmond. Um, and the, it, the Permanent Secretary refused to answer before the convener came in and said, I don't think this is an appropriate question. Now, the, the reality that the committee need to cope with is that there, people will complain, you know, about legal privilege, um, about whether civil servants should, should be saying things when actually they act for ministers. Um, but let's cut through all of that. You're absolutely right. These are some of the key questions that speak to the culture within the organisation and what action they took or didn't take. And these are questions that need to be answered. Now, subsequently, the Permanent Secretary has written to the committee saying she's happy to write to us to answer these questions. I think you'll find that the committee's view is we will recall the Permanent Secretary so that she can answer them under oath. Um, and, you know, the, the, we're only currently looking at the culture. We'll come on to look at the judicial review, the actual complaints themselves and how they were handled. Um, so I anticipate that this will take quite some time. In the meantime, my dining room table is awash with papers with kind of dots and, you know, different markers on them to try and piece this together because it is complex. Um, and my main issue is that the Scottish Government currently are withholding information from the committee, which is simply unacceptable. And how much power does the committee have? We know select committees can summon people. Dominic Cummings chose not to go and basically nothing happened. Boris Johnson effectively refused to appear in front of the liaison committee. Do you, are you similarly hamstrung that if someone really doesn't want to come, what powers do you have to force them? Um, the committee can compel witnesses to attend. They can compel witnesses to provide evidence. Um, we haven't, I don't think there's been many occasions where any committee of the Scottish Parliament has had to use that power. Usually an invitation is sufficient, um, and I hope that, that that will continue. But at the moment, we're dealing with the phase that, that is more about civil servants. We hear from the civil service trade unions next week. 
But in the future, we will hear from the former First Minister, Alex Salmond, and indeed we will hear from the current serving First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon. So, you know, it, it will be a committee that will be of great interest, I suspect, to the press, um, but we will do our job thoroughly if we can only get the information we require from the Scottish Government. When you, when you compel something, what would that mean in practice? Would that mean the police going around someone and marching them in? I have no idea what it means in practice, but, but, but if you are compelled to attend, you are required to attend. Um, By law. We, we, indeed, you know, so I don't know what the consequences are. I hope people would find us, you know, a quite, not an intimidating committee, but one that wants to seek out the, the answers required. Um, so, it, so far, I don't think we'll, we'll require to use it. Where we are actually engaged in, in quite detailed discussions with the Scottish Government is that we want more information, particularly about the legal advice they receive, about the judicial review that costs the taxpayer a minimum of more than £500,000. Actually, we think it's at least double that when you consider the amount of effort and time put into this by the Scottish Government and their officials. Um, it's a, an extraordinary amount of money for something that, that should not have been done in error in the way that it was done. So it's important we investigate this. Unfortunately, the Scottish Government doesn't want to give us that information. Um, but I have to tell you, the people, the members of the committee are determined. We will get it. Well, that's what I was going to ask. What's the likelihood of you getting information the government doesn't want to give you? Well, we'll keep pursuing it. You know, we, we will be determined and dogged in our determination to get that information. You cannot say to a parliamentary committee it, conducting an inquiry that we're only going to tell you so much because actually we don't want you to see what, what's hidden up our sleeve. Um, we need to do this openly and transparently. Um, and so the committee will seek any opportunity to obtain that information. Being dispassionate about it, and it's a hard subject to be dispassionate about. Absolutely. Are there any legitimate grounds on which information, the sort of which you're asking for, should or could be withheld? Um, I think governments in the past have said we don't provide uh, commentary on the legal advice, whether we take it or the contents of it, because it does put um, the legal profession in a difficult position providing advice that then may become public. Um, but I think there are times where public interest outweighs everything else. So, for example, the government has on at least one occasion, maybe more, um, provided information on the legal advice they've sought, um, and we intend to pursue that. You know, I think it, it is so key to what happened at the judicial review. It's so central to the committee's remit that actually we need to stop at nothing to try and get that information. You've been an MSP, as you said, since 1999, one of the longest... I started young. Just <laughs> and you're still young. You're still young. So oh, you I like you. <laughs> very young. Um, how much, and, and interpret this in any way you like, really, how much has Scottish politics, has Holyrood changed since then? And what, what are the main, I mean, obviously, the independence debate is kind of the crucial thing. You've seen a new parliament effectively grow and, and, and evolve. How does it compare to the parliament you first joined? It's a really interesting question. I think the parliament I first joined, you know, we were full of hope, okay, absolutely full of hope, and I remain full of hope. That, that's the one thing 
that keeps me getting up in the morning, um, enjoying the job that I do, you know, because um, I love people and they keep me very firmly rooted to the ground. But, but actually, if you can use the small amount of power you have to help people, then that, that is a good thing. You sleep well at night. Um, but the parliament itself you know, had a bit of a rocky start, you know. Um, we were criticised, people gave us medals for no reason, um, you know, and, and we didn't hit the ground running. We, we were there for a few weeks and then we went into recess and people just didn't understand that, having waited for a Scottish parliament for so long. So there was a lot of criticism and I, I did think, you know, judge the parliament in 50 years. That's when you actually decide, has it been worthwhile? I think you can judge it earlier. I think it has become such a part of the institutional landscape. People look to the parliament, you know, we've had visitors from across the country because they feel that the parliament is theirs. That is a thoroughly good thing, you know, and I of course would argue that Labour being in government, albeit with the Lib Dems in coalition from the beginning, um, has established that parliament in a way that it's grown and developed positively. My one regret, I suppose, is that Donald Dewar um, died when he did, because I think the Parliament would be a very different place if, if he had remained. Um, but, but there you go. So we, we've, had, we've had our ups and downs, um, but we have become very much part of Scottish civic society in a way that I hadn't hoped would, would happen in the short space of 20 years. Um, you know, and I always think that it, whilst people will, will complain about the Parliament or politicians as a class, they then say to you, but we don't mean you, you're okay. But the reality is all politicians, whatever their strength, are elected to try and do the very best they can for their constituency and indeed for the country. And I think, you know, despite the churn, because there's been a huge churn in the past, lots of new members, um, you know, very few of us have been there 20 years and, and many of them are retiring. So I'll be one, hopefully, of a very small um, number of people subject of course to my constituents thinking that they want me back um, so yeah it's it's I think it's grown in maturity I hope now as we move forward it, it grows even further it uses the powers we have it becomes more mature in its relationship with the rest of the UK so it's not always an argy-bargy and you know wanting fisticuffs with people um, and deciding what our difference is but it's more about how do we work together to get the very best. Because I'm conscious that when I talk about jobs programmes um, in Scotland, I want the money that the UK has for this kind of thing to be working in tandem with what we do in Scotland so we get the biggest bang possible for our buck. So I hope that that's where the Parliament goes to in the future. It's also, uh, the building at the time was highly controversial and some people are still uh, not convinced of the exterior. But it's a magnificent building. Uh, it's absolutely stunning inside, and the chamber's great. I think it's a phenomenal place. I've been lucky to visit it a few times. I went to FMQs uh, last year. I just thought it was fantastic. I couldn't believe it had been such a controversial, you know, building. Uh, it, 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 it's funny because um, there used to be a, a man in my constituency, unfortunately now dead, that every time he saw me in the street in Dumbarton, he would say to me, see that building, see that building that you've put up as if I was the architect, <laughs> you know, I was the cost controller, and I got pelters for it. It was all my fault that it was running over time, over budget. He was one of the first people I invited to come and see it. <laughs> and ever since that time, 
he loved it, right? And I walked on water because suddenly <laughs> I was responsible for this brand new building that, that he'd slated for years. Um, and it was a wonderful thing. I have to say, it's a great place to work. You know, um, it's not got the tradition that Westminster has. It's a very modern parliament. Um, but I have never felt, and it, it's a strange thing, I've never felt moved by um, a space. But, but walking into the chamber of the Scottish parliament, you, you are, well, I certainly feel it. I, I feel compelled to do my best. It's a really strange feeling. Um, so, so when I speak, I should speak having thought about what I'm saying you know, rather than just do something off the cuff that, that is, is, is not respecting of the environment that you're in. I've never felt like that about any other place. Right? So I hope I do my best in the chamber because of that. Oh, this has been so much fun. It's been a, it's such a, I'm so pleased you came on. Jackie Bailey, what a brilliant conversation, but it really made me miss Scotland. I went on a tour of the Scottish Parliament about this time last year during the last Edinburgh Festival. I was obviously there towards the end of the year when I was doing interviews for the election series of this, but, oh man, for the last, I reckon at least 15 years, I've spent a month of my life, definitely for the last 10 I've spent a month of my life in Edinburgh, during August, for probably 13 years. It feels so weird not to be there. Um, and it's like Glastonbury when you when you're meant to be going and it doesn't happen. You just feel slightly depressed that you're not there. So hopefully I'll be able to visit Scotland soon, the Scottish Parliament, and of course the pubs near the Scottish Parliament, which are fantastic across Edinburgh. Um, but it was a brilliant chat with Jackie. Um, and do email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail dot com. Ben Kluge, or is it Kluge? I'm sorry, Ben. If, if it's pronounced the third way, I'm even more sorry. But he listens in New Zealand. Um, now, I'm not only interested in people who listen from far-flung places, but, of course, when you record something in Britain and people listen to it in Japan or New York or New Zealand, then obviously it's um, exciting. But do let me know where you listen in, in Britain. And any suggestions for guests or any feedback about episodes, all gratefully received. Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. As I mentioned at the start... I've written a book. It's all finished. Um, it will be out on the 8th of October. You can pre-order it now from Blackwell's. Uh, you can pre-order a signed copy um, or you can buy it in all the usual places, Waterstones and Amazon and whatnot. And I've also, uh, releasing, and I am also releasing an audio book, um, which I'm going to record in a couple of days, which I can only imagine is a surreal thing. To read an entire book out loud. I'm going to feel like a nursery teacher, but reading my own book. Um, so hopefully I, I hopefully I do the great text justice. Um, but there you go. A number of people got in touch asking about an audiobook. So yes, uh, that will be available and uh, on Audible and the other places where audiobooks exist, I guess. Um, that's enough um, rambling from me. Thank you for downloading this. Do tell your friends about it. Do share it. And if you could, find it within yourself to leave an iTunes review. It only takes a couple of seconds. Uh, it helps bump it up the charts and helps other people find it. So stay safe, stay well, stay happy, and I'll see you next week. Ta-ra! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.